All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Um, Unfortunately, Damon Vickers was not able to be with us uh, for the full hour that we had intended him to be with us. Damon uh, needed to depart uh, to tend to the markets. He is a trader. He is involved in the markets day to day. And today uh, has been a very, very volatile day. In fact, the Dow was uh, is, is down very strongly all day long. Uh, the S&P is down strongly. And going in the opposite direction is oil and gold, no doubt related to a great extent to what's going on in the Middle East. Interestingly enough, it seems as though uh, the uh, the accounts of dictators are being frozen and uh, so maybe a lot of these uh, uh, these strong-armed politicians, men that run different countries, are thinking, well, maybe I should own gold rather than uh, put money in banks because I'm just going to have my assets frozen when things go against me. Well, in any event, whatever the case is, uh, we're I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what I'm planning to talk about uh, in my presentation at the PDAC conference coming up next Sunday. Uh, I'll be speaking in Toronto at the Prospectors and Developers Conference, the Investor Forum, at 1.20 in the afternoon until 1.45. So I'm going to pass along to you uh, some of the thoughts that I will be expressing uh, to the to the group of people uh, at uh, in Toronto that will be attending this conference. I have been saying for some time uh, to my subscribers as well as on this radio show that I believe that we are in the buying opportunity of the bull market of a lifetime, is the way I put it, for gold mining shares. Not only for gold mining, but for gold mining shares. And I want to tell you why I think that is the case here in the next few minutes, the next uh, 15 minutes or so that I have to talk to you. We need to go to the macroeconomic 
uh, environment, I think, to try to understand what is going on and what is driving gold to such high levels. Let me just preface uh, further comments by saying that it's not that gold is going up in value. It's more that paper money, that currency is being debased. The fiat money, fiat meaning money that is dictated by law. We have the dollars. We use dollars not because people have said, oh, yeah, I'd like to use that paper money as a medium of exchange, as a store of value. No, when people have left to their own devices, when the markets are free, generally they choose an asset-based money as opposed to a liability money. We have a liability money, and that's something that's very, very important to consider. Keep that in mind as I talk to you more about why I think we're in the bull market of a lifetime for gold and especially gold mining shares. Asset-backed money is money that doesn't have an offset, doesn't have a liability attached to it. So if you have an ounce of gold, that is money. That works as a store of value. It's not dependent on someone else's ability to pay their debts. Uh, the value of that ounce of gold is not derived from someone else's ability to pay back their debts. Well, fiat money, is, which is what we have now, money by law, money dictated to us by law, is dependent on the ability of other people to pay their debts. And we've seen what happens when people can't pay their debts. We see what happens to the banking system. We're in big trouble. Well, let me start out by saying that uh, from a macroeconomic position, we have gotten ourselves into an extreme amount of debt. And I owe some gratitude of my own, uh, indebtedness of, of my own to my good friend Ian Gordon, who's done some great work, I think, in going back and getting data uh, charted going all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, and Ian was testing the theories of a Russian economist named Nikolai Kondratiev, who worked for Stalin, was employed by Stalin, to try to prove that the capitalist system would self-destruct. Uh, Kondratiev studied history and said, no, no, it doesn't go away. Capitalism has ex excessive uh, expansions. Uh, it, it, uh, it goes into, um, uh, it has problems then when it expands too much, when it debases its currency, when it takes on too much debt. And then uh, it has a contraction period uh, in which debt, uh, debt is, uh, is reneged, uh, cannot be paid, it's wiped off the books and you have these depressions, these contractions in the economy. And that was uh, Kondratiev's insight. So Ian Gordon has gone back and has actually gathered chart, uh, chart data, has charted data that go back to the Revolutionary War. And we're talking about stock prices, commodity prices, gold prices, interest rates, uh, U.S. bonds, etc. And what you see very clearly, if you look at this chart, and you can't because we're on the radio now, but I do present it, I'll be talking in Toronto, uh, and in most of my most of my speeches that I give, I show this chart. We see this massive expansion of credit, and then the system comes to the point where it, it credit and debt becomes so great that it cannot be repaid, and then the system has to implode, has to come back, uh, and you have these massive deflationary collapses. I believe that we are in still in a very massive credit deflation notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Bernanke has been able to get asset prices to inflate recently, uh, the debt is growing exponentially. And there is another slide that I like to show at my presentations that show uh, total debt in the United States growing exponentially. At the end of 2007, that total debt from all sectors of the American economy, private and, and public, was $53 trillion. But more importantly than the total amount of debt was the direction of this debt. The debt was growing exponentially and is still growing exponentially, and I dare say it is at much higher levels now since 2008, 2009, 
2010 on into 2011, uh, with all of the stimulus, the QE packages, the stimulus packages, etc., and the deficit spending by government, we are increasing the money supply very, very dramatically. It's growing even more, more rapidly now. But it's the direction of this growth of debt. Remember, it's debt money. It's not asset money. And that relates to uh, very uh, that relates very unsatisfactorily to the growth in income. Uh, the same chart that I show shows a blue line of GDP, and that at best is growing in a linear fashion at about two, three percent, four percent a year at most. When it's growing, and we have had periods of time just recently, of course, when it's been negative, when we've had a contraction in the income in the GDP of our nation. So. We are seeing this uh, uh, this tremendous growth, exponential growth in debt and a linear growth in income. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this cannot go on forever. You cannot continue to live beyond your means, especially at an accelerated rate, living beyond your means forever. Uh, another picture that I show shows the total debt to GDP in a single line, uh, the ratio, and we're now at 369% of uh, of GDP, total debt is now uh, at 369% of GDP. That is by far the highest that it's ever been in our history. Previously, the high would have been in 1933 when because of a contracting economy, because we were in a depression, the income side of the equation went, went, went down, went negative. Uh, now we're looking at, um, we're not even seeing that. We're not seeing any serious contraction in, in income but we are seeing a very serious contraction or let's say a very serious explosion in debt to income, the ratio. So the ability to pay back the debt is declining very, very rapidly. Now, if that isn't bad enough, we've had Lawrence Kotlikoff on this show in the past. He's a professor at Boston University, economics professor, was on the Clinton economics team, has tried to get government to come clean and tell the American people what the total debt is that they that is owed we're talking about off balance sheet debt now future payments of medicare uh and social security and kotlikoff has gone back and looked at the present value of future payment obligations of the united states uh, government and is looking at 202 trillion dollars 202 trillion dollars of present value realizing that future dollars are worth less than the ones now uh, that's a present value, $202 trillion, on top of the $53 trillion that's owed entirely by the United States and its debt. So we're looking at a, at a situation of insolvency, and just as we did in the 1930s. And unfortunately, the policies are the same as they were in the 1930s. They did not work in the 1930s. They are not working now. They will not work now. They cannot work now. So we have to realize that, uh, as uh, another guest of mine that I had on the show uh, was uh, Burton Folsom. He's a historian uh, in a small college in uh, Michigan. Uh, he quoted in his book called The New Deal or Raw Deal. He said we, uh, he quoted the Secretary of the Treasury, Morgenthau, under Roosevelt. And he was critical of the policies of the Roosevelt administration, which, by the way, is the same thing as we're seeing now with the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Bernanke Fed, and the Federal Reserve of the 1930s. Folsom went back and quoted Treasury Secretary Morgenthau under Roosevelt, and he said, and I quote, We have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. And I have just one interest, and if I'm wrong, somebody else can have my job. I want to see this country prosperous. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. 
We have never made good on our promises. I say after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as we were as we had when we started, and an enormous amount of debt to boot. End of quote. That was Secretary Treasury, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau during Roosevelt's time. So the policies didn't work then. Why should we think they'll work again? Well, the uh, the, the uh, argument from Bernanke and others is that, well, they would work, except they weren't executed very well in the 30s, and now we're going to do a better job of execution. I don't think they're going to work. I don't think there's any soft landing ahead. So the big question is, how does this $202 trillion question uh, problem get resolved? Will it be through the fires of hyperinflation or through massive deflation? And I honestly don't know, although, as I've hinted, I, I lean towards the deflationary side because the more debt that is created, uh, the more money that is created, the more debt you have, and debt is deflationary, and debt is growing much more rapidly than income. So will they be able to print money, shower it off the countryside, give it to the lower-income people? Maybe if they do that, the policymakers can, uh, can inflate our problem away, can inflate, inflate the debt away. It won't inflate our problem away. It will only take away the debt. Uh, it will make the dollars that are on the books less burdensome to repay. Uh, but it will not remove the depression. We're going to have either a hyperinflationary or, de or a deflationary depression ahead of us. I'm quite convinced of that. So how will it get resolved? And, and I've looked at something. I've put together something to try to uh, keep my emotions out of it, to keep anecdotal evidence out of it, and try to weigh and measure some, something. Is the system inflating or is it deflating? And uh, right now, there's no question that since uh, Bernanke and QE1, QE2, deficit spending uh, pumped money into the system, we are now inflating. At least asset prices are inflating, stock prices are inflating, but the economy is not growing, is not growing very rapidly. We're not seeing much of any kind of real economic growth. I think we're seeing a lot of malinvestment in the United States and around the world, in China perhaps, where, there, uh, where they have a command economy and lots of buildings are getting built. Uh, high-speed railroads and so forth, will those really be economic? That remains to be seen. But my view is that when you have a command economy, it's not market-driven from the bottom up. Chances are you're going to have some big problems in the future globally. And so the question is, do we hyperinflate or do we deflate? Well, as I said, because I think uh, uh, every time you issue more money, you're issuing more debt, that, you, that debt is the problem. It's strangling the economy right now. My belief is it will head towards a deflationary depression. And what happens when we have a contraction in the credit side, in the credit markets? Uh, we see a, a flight towards away from illiquidity uh, and extras and non-necessities towards liquidity and necessities. And the highest liquidity asset is gold. The second highest one is Federal Reserve notes, or let's say uh, central bank notes that you can carry around in your pocket. And actually, if you deflate those notes actually gain value. You may not want to keep those notes in the bank because of the risk that the banks will go under given the, given the indebtedness that they cannot, they cannot be serviced. Uh, but as John Exter has pointed out, the great deflation advocate and central banker John F. Exter has pointed out that during these periods of time, gold is the place to be. Well, one of the reasons that I say gold mining is uh, the buy of a lifetime is the, in the bull market of a lifetime is because we're seeing the real price of gold rise very dramatically. Ever since the Lehman Brothers collapse, before the collapse, we saw an ounce of gold would have purchased only 15% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It skyrocketed to 44% by March of, two, of, uh, 
of 2009. It came back to about 30%, then went back up to about 42% during the Greek crisis uh, last year. And now it's right around about 35, 34%. So an ounce of gold will buy an awful lot more of the Rogers Raw Material Fund than it would have bought before. And this is very important, an insight from another analyst we've had on our show, Bob Hoy. Bob has gone back and looked at the last 300 years of history. Bob thinks we are in a credit deflation cycle now. And the five previous credit deflation cycles, the same thing happened. The real price of gold rose very dramatically. And that's important for gold mining because it means gold mining profits are likely to grow and grow very significantly. And since the real price of gold has grown up dramatically, we are, in fact, seeing that happen. We're seeing very substantial uh, increase in the profits of senior gold mining companies. In 2008, there's a, a bunch, uh, about, let's see, two, about eight or ten uh, companies that I follow here that if you added up all their income, all their earnings per share in earnings in 2008 was $0.82. Cents. It grew to $1.20 in 2009. It's estimated to come out, and we should have these numbers fairly soon, to closer to $2 in 2010 and then grow to $2.50 by 2011. So from uh, $0.82 cents to $1.20, $1.82, or $1, I say $2 to 250 we're looking at a very dramatic rise in the price of gold. The real price of gold having risen, making gold mining profits rise very dramatically. Well, that's sort of the short story of where I think we're going. There are a number of companies that I think are very, very much worth looking at in the gold mining sector, and I'll be talking about some of those uh, in my speech in Toronto. I talk about them, of course, every week in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. Uh, you can go to Jay Taylor, uh, you can go to miningstocks.com for that, or better yet, go to jtaylormedia.com, J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media.com. Let me just give you a couple of ideas, a couple of companies that I think uh, are really looking very, very good. One that I like an awful lot is called Dynacor, and that's a company that has earnings, very nice earnings in Peru. They're a custom milling company. Uh, and they will be um, growing earnings very dramatically through custom milling, but they also have a very exciting uh, SCARN deposit that could be a world-class gold and copper deposit. If they hit on that, I think this stock is going to be a moonshot. Other companies that I like, I sort of favor what we call the project generator companies. Dr. John Mark Stoudy has been on this show before, and he will be coming on to talk to you about gold mining exploration concepts uh, on this radio show in the near future. Uh, Riverside Resources is one company. Millrock uh, Resources uh, is another company. These are project generators, um, and also Yale, uh, Yale Resources is still a third company. These are companies that get other companies to come in and spend the high-risk capital. They give up a portion of their properties, and they have lots of different properties with good promise, but they're not going to put the expensive capital in the ground. They'll let other companies do that. They keep the share prices from uh, they keep the shares from being diluted extensively by doing that. Uh, there are many, many ideas. This is a gold bull market of a lifetime in my view. Again, I hope you'll tune in uh, next week and hear about some more great stories in the mining sector. Uh, that's all the time we have for this segment, but don't go away. My my buddy and uh, partner Roger Wiegand will be back. Uh, after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Roger Wiegand.
markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, it has been a difficult day here uh, for our radio show with lots of little technical difficulties. That just, uh, you know, it's Murphy's Law, I guess. There's, uh, there are just days like this, and uh, 
anyway, no reason to go on with that because now we have Roger Wiegand with us, and Roger uh, will have, I'm sure, some insightful things to pass along to you. Welcome, Roger. Good to be here. Good to be here, Jay. Well, good to have you again, Roger. We uh, so often have you come on at the end of the show when you get crowded out with two minutes to speak. So now we've got you for uh, 10 or 12 minutes, and then we can have you on at the end along with Chen. And my friend and your friend Chen is supposed to join us. He is at a, a, Scarsdale's, uh, a Scarsdale Capital Ideas Luncheon today, and Chen will be uh, hopefully back in his, uh, in his office at 4.30, and he'll be tuning in with us. Well, Roger, um, glad you could come on in this sort of uh, pinch-hitting role. We were talking about um, the Middle East conflicts and oil. Oil prices, what are they doing today? Are, is oil up or is it down today? With the stock market coming down hard, I'm wondering what the oil prices are doing today. Oh, Jay, oil is up today. It's up $2.60 on the April most active futures. 260 up 2.7 percent, a good move. Uh, the price right now is $99.57. Uh, the high was 99.77, a little bit higher. Uh, there is resistance at 100 bucks. But the big theme in the story today is that the Middle Eastern violence and problems uh, is spreading between uh, numerous among numerous countries. And what it's done, it it arbitrarily pulled gold right out of a, of a standard technical consolidation, and it just popped it right up. I was looking, in fact, I was looking at it uh, and talking to our broker today that uh, I expected tomorrow or the day after the consolidation would be over with and that we could start looking for new long positions. But uh, what happened was uh, it did a uh, A down and the B up went up, but it, it closed on the B exactly where it opened again, it should have gone down, and I'm confusing everybody, but what happened is instead of going down, it went up $20. I mean, theoretically, it could have gone down 15 or 20 bucks, and instead it went up 20 The trading range for gold today was $23.60. The hmm. majority of that trade is on the upside. Gold is up in April on the most active futures, 1.5%. The low is 1409. It blew right through 1415 resistance. It went all the way up to the old high, and I knew eventually we were going to get there, and today was the day. Mm. Uh, we got within 10 cents of the old high at 1433.50. Uh, we, did, we did 40 cents. Um, it's amazing how these numbers will go right to these old resistance points, then turn around. But mm. uh, for our listeners today, the important thing is, not only did we see a massive breakout on these problems in the Middle East, but we're seeing no selling. Uh, right now, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the selling is so mild, it's only within a couple dollars lower than the high that we touched today. So it looks like support is going to be over $1,431. Hmm. So this, is, uh, this could be the big breakout that we are, in fact, looking for. And silver, uh, the May silver contract, which is now the most active, up 2.2%, $34.58. Our previous hard resistance low was back at 32.45. Mm. So I guess, you know, for our listeners, what is the next big step? What do we see? Mm -hmm. I think now we have an excellent chance of setting a brand new high in gold. I think we can break through that 1433, 
And if we do, uh, there's an intermediate resistance at 1436. I think gold can easily go up to 1438, uh, then 1442, and then uh, 1450. Mm-hmm. So we're off in new ground, new high prices in gold. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so your chart patterns, though, your Elliott Wave patterns were suggesting that this shouldn't happen. Uh, we shouldn't see gold break out like it did today. Is that right? Exactly. And and uh, I suppose it's happened before. Maybe it did in my memory, but I, you know, my memory's not so perfect either. But uh, I have not, to my knowledge, I've not seen this breakout like this. Hmm. So, uh, so where, so I guess the sky is the limit. It's hard to say now. Well, I guess what what would you suggest as as a target price for gold if this breakout is for real? If this if this breakout is for real, um, we got to get past that high that we just touched at fourteen thirty three and a half. That is the highest high we have seen in gold in modern times. If we get mm-hmm. past that price, we're off into new territory, brand new territory, higher. And we're headed to uh, something that's you know twenty, thirty, fifty dollars higher on the next big cycle. Uh, we've been saying that gold and gold and silver shares will be on the upside all the way through until May, with two minor corrections in the middle. And if this is the first breakout of the two, uh, we could look at probably uh, four to six weeks of good activity in the precious metals. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side of the coin, one thing to be concerned about is uh, March 15th, 16th, the Ides of March, uh, is a uh, pivot re- uh, pivot date, and what that means is uh, stocks could go into an intermediate sell between 3 and 7% down. I'm talking about the broader stock market. Now, what happened the last sell we had, precious metal stocks sold too, but they didn't sell very much. In other words... If the big broader market would, did sell off maybe three or four percent, gold and silver stocks did not do that much. Maybe they only went down one or two percent. This, in fact, could be the point at which we're going to see a divergence between gold and silver and, and, and its related shares versus the broader stock market. That's going to be very interesting, and we are writing about it in our letter this week. Uh, so, Roger, so let me understand, uh, my attention span here was pulled away to my engineer talking to me, but are you talking about um, silver continuing to gain relative to gold? Yes, in fact, it's going even faster, Jay, and it has been probably for the last five or six weeks. Our high call on silver for this year is $51, and that's pretty bold for me, but I, I can't see anything that's going to stop it. I'm also comparing, as we go along the past few weeks, the difference between the percentages on gold shares and silver shares and the silver shares and the juniors are going probably 50% more or maybe 200% more faster than the gold shares. So what mm-hmm. this says to me is the pressure on silver is extreme. It's going to the high side. I think there's been a shortage of physical silver in the markets, and people are talking it up, and the news is moving it. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had reports from the likes uh, of Eric Sprott and others who have uh, who have started funds, physical silver funds. Uh, difficulty in in taking delivery, the long time it takes to get the actual delivery of the of the bullion. Uh, maybe that's what's going on, Roger. Maybe you know when when people actually decide that they're not going to just trade paper, 
you know, one contract for another, roll it over, but actually demand delivery of the metal, then we could see who knows how high it would go. As Damon Vickers was saying, you know, what price do we need to see gold at if we ever were to go to a gold-backed system? And, you know, it's interesting because, in a way, people, the markets, are demanding a gold-backed system now. That's what's driving the price of gold up. There's a loss of confidence in paper. People are increasingly seeing the politicians for being what they really are, con men, working on behalf of their buddies in the banking industry and in large corporate interest. Uh, and people are getting really fed up, and they're saying, wait a minute, or, you know, maybe people aren't even conscious of what's going on. A lot of people are not, but they're saying, we don't have confidence in paper anymore. Give us the real thing. Isn't that what's happening? Absolutely. And two more signals, Jay, I found very interesting. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange made an announcement in the past few days that they will take physical bullion gold as collateral for traders. Hmm. Now, that's, well, that's that it. I find very interesting. Now, the next thing we saw was... Uh, the bank in New York, J.P. Morgan Chase, the big global bank, they're saying that they will take gold as collateral, too. And actually, they, if people are selling gold, they gave the impression or the tone in the announcement that they would like to take in gold. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they've got some big problems with the Commodities Trading Commission because they've got a lot of lawsuits against them regarding both silver and gold manipulation. I think they quit their shorting. And I think mm -hmm. that what they would like to do is get people to give them physical silver and gold so they would have more metal to back up their problems. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting, Roger. What you're saying there really is sort of consistent with what, uh, you know, I talked to Damon Vickers about. The front page of the Financial Times today talks about Italian banks go for gold and move to transfer to transform capital core capital ratios. In other words, they're saying they have this gold in their vaults. We at least they're saying they have their gold in the vaults. Whether they do or not, I'm not sure, because nobody knows in the U.S., for example, how much gold we really own. It hasn't been audited since the Eisenhower administration. But let's assume that the Italian banks have the gold. They have a pitifully low equity uh, in their, in their, uh, on their balance sheet, and so they're being forced to go out and issue more shares, and they're saying, wait a minute, we don't think we should have to do that because we have this very valuable asset on our books, gold, and if we mark the gold to market, all of a sudden, bingo, we've got all the capital we need, and we, me and we measure up to all the capital ratios. I think this is really interesting because uh, if they have the gold and the shareholders don't want to get diluted, there's sort of the market forces are coming together uh, to force even the J.P. Morgans of this world to say, okay, we will accept gold instead of paper now. I think that's fascinating. Roger, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, if you want to hang around uh, to talk with Jeff Berwick, we'd like to have you. Otherwise, we'll see you and Chen at uh, 4.30. It's, it's up to you. Okay, uh, I'll folks, stay on. Okay, stick, stick around, Roger. That'd be fine. And then, folks, uh, we're going to have Jeff Berwick. We're going to go to our commercial break, but Jeff Berwick will be with us right after the break. Jeff Berwick... Um, a very interesting story, uh, a dot-com, uh, or let's say a, a high-tech guru uh, from the uh, before the dot-com era. He's going to be uh, before the burst of the bubble, the dot-com bubble. Jeff will be with us after the break with some fascinating things to tell you. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, um, and I'm really pleased to have with me Jeff Berwick. Roger, uh, a key guest today, Jeff Berwick. Roger Wiegand is returning as well. Well, as many of you know, uh, I am a frequent speaker at a number of investment conferences in Canada and the United States. And last month, I attended a, well, actually a couple of weeks ago, a week ago or so, I attended a conference uh, by Cambridge House in Phoenix, Arizona, and at that conference uh, was a relatively new name to the Cambridge House circuit, and that's Jeff Berwick. Jeff um, has a really interesting story. He founded Stockhouse.com. Uh, it was Canada's largest financial website in 1994, uh, and he was the CEO uh, on the board of directors up until 2006. Uh, he is now the founder and chief editor of an excellent newsletter, an online newsletter, The Dollar Vigilante. 
The Dollar Vigilante is a free market financial newsletter focused on covering all aspects of the ongoing financial collapse, the kind of things we talk about on this show on a regular basis. Uh, he, it covers information and analysis on investments uh, with safety and profit in mind during, during what are expected to be, I believe, will be very tumultuous times. We're seeing that happen uh, in front of our eyes in many different parts of the world right now, in the Middle East, for example. Uh, so he covers gold, silver, energy, agricultural commodities, and, uh, and generally a, a lot of publicly traded stocks. As well, the newsletter covers other aspects, including expatriation, both financially and physically, and news and info on health, safety, and other ways to survive the coming collapse of the dollar safely and comfortably. And we just, of course, talked to Damian Vickers about the collapse of the dollar earlier in this show. Uh, so uh, just in case I forget to tell you before we say hello to Jeff, I want to be sure that I tell you now, it's dollarvigilante.com. That's www.dollarvigilante.com. I would ask you to take down that website now, jot it down so that you can go and visit that excellent website. Uh, welcome, Jeff, to turning hard times into good times. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. Really good to have you here. I mean, I'm saying here. I'm in New York. Roger Wiegand, who's with us, is out in, uh, out in Washington uh, near the uh, Canadian border, and you're down in Mexico. More specifically, where, Jeff? I'm in Acapulco at the moment, looking over. It's 90 degrees, looking over all of Acapulco Bay. The reason I said uh, it's good to be here is because I'm a little bit of a computer nerd, so I guess I consider myself living <laughs> in the matrix. Yes, you're a little bit a little bit more than a little bit of a computer nerd. You uh, were the founder of, uh, of, of Stockhouse. Um, talk to us a little bit about Stockhouse and your experience there. You, when, when were you the CEO and when did you start the company? I actually started the company in 1994. Basically, as soon as I heard about the Internet, I started the company. <laughs> I was, uh, as I just mentioned, I'm a bit of a computer nerd. I started at about 10 years old uh, when my grandpa bought me an Apple II Plus clone from Vietnam that I had to build myself. It actually had a 48K of RAM and a 300 baud modem. Um, and actually, my uh, Christmas wish for that year was to upgrade to 64K of RAM. Not megabytes, not gigabytes, but K. <laughs> uh, basically, <laughs> it's pretty funny looking back on it now, but that's how I started, and I was basically hacking on my computer from the age of 10. I rarely went to school, which actually, uh, in the end, I think helped me out because most of these uh, government-run publicly educated schools or indoctrination camps, as I call them, uh -huh. Uh -huh. uh, basically teach you, well, they don't really teach you anything. They just teach you how to submit and, and to comply to the government. So mm -hmm. I flipped out a little bit by just staying at home and hacking on my computer all the time. So I was doing that all my youth. And uh, I actually had become a little bit bored of computers at one point. And uh, I was working at a bank, and I decided I'd want to become a stockbroker because I had taken an interest up in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And uh, right then, uh, I still remember the day someone approached me and they said, have you heard about this Internet? And I said, no, what is it? And they said, well, they've figured out a way to connect all these computers. And I basically just dropped everything I was doing. I ran home, got on my computer, and, uh, and right from there, that's when I started Stockhouse. I, just, I, I quickly went on the Internet and I realized there was hardly anything on it at the time. That was 1994. That's basically when I started it. You could say it started in 1993, but there was just like uh, 300 people who even knew about it at that point. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I got on, and uh, I, I was into stocks at the time. So I said, well, what am I going to do on this thing? I've been waiting my whole life for this. And uh, 
and I, I went to look for stock information. I could, you couldn't even get stock quotes at the time, so I said, okay, I'll start a stock uh, website and I'll, I'll get mm-hmm. stock quotes. And that's basically the very beginning of Stockhouse. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and hearing you talk about this brings back memories of a movie I recently saw called Facebook, and I think that you saw it as well. <laughs> you were saying that it sort of brought back old memories to you as well. Yeah, I just saw it actually just a few days ago. I don't like going to the theater too much. I wait until I can download it off of the internet, really, is what I do. And so I just saw it a couple of days ago. And yeah, I didn't feel like I was watching a movie. I felt like I was just having a huge flashback. <laughs> uh, because basically, I went through a lot of the same things. It was obviously on a much smaller scale. Although it's still, com is still the largest financial website in Canada. It's basically the equivalent of marketwatch.com or thestreet.com in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's still uh, the, the top financial website in Canada. Basically, anyone in Canada who invests in stocks and uses the Internet uses our website. Uh, it's an, or I say our, I sold it in 2002. But uh, that, that's basically what I founded in, in uh, Canada. And from 1994 to 2002, I ran it. And uh, so, yeah, I have basically watching the Facebook uh, movie was like, almost exactly like I really actually, when the movie was over, I kind of was in this weird state of mind because I felt like I had just had a flashback, really, because it's all the same sort of things happened to us that happened in that movie. Yeah. Well, my wife has just reminded me that it's the name of the movie is The Social Network, but it was about Facebook. And, uh, you know, who who isn't on Facebook these days? I mean, how many Facebook members are there now? There's millions and millions of people I think the last are now connected. 500 million. And uh, I, I knew Facebook was huge when I was sitting there one day and my grandfather added me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that was when yeah, I, I mean, said, okay. Something's up with this website. <laughs> okay, that, that's fascinating. But Jeff, this was really a life-changing event for you. Talk to us a little bit. Share with our listeners the story, your story. Stockhouse was a booming, successful business during the bubble, and then the bubble imploded. Uh, share that experience with us. What was it like being the CEO of a company, of a dot-com company, that, that ran into this, this incredible implosion, industry-wide implosion? Yeah, it was uh, quite the few years for myself, for sure. Um, just to give a little bit of background, around 19, you know, I started it in 1994, but really no one knew too much about it till about 1996. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to sell, basically our website sold advertising, that's how we made money. Um, and I remember all through 1996, we wouldn't sell advertising. When we'd go to sell someone on advertising, We'd say, hello, we're the largest financial website in Canada. Would you like to buy advertising on our site? And they would respond, what's the Internet? What's a website? And then I'd have to basically explain to them what, it, what the Internet was, what a website was, and why they might want to be on it. And so we did all that through 1996, 97. Then 1998, something happened, and uh, all of a sudden we were just getting uh, just a tremendous amounts of traffic. It really, 1998 is when it really took off for us. And we were getting so much traffic that uh, it was crashing all our servers, which I was still running. I was running. We had an office, but I was still running our servers out of my house. <laughs> and uh, I actually had to take on about $150,000 worth of debt on credit card advances, Ooh. lines of credit, anything I could get just to buy servers to keep the site running. Uh-huh. And... Uh, 
basically after that, it really took off, and I knew we were onto something, so I, I took on a lot of that debt, which I, I totally couldn't afford at all. But I knew that we were onto something, and I knew that this was something I had to do. So I, I went into that debt, and then around 90, late 1998, we got, or yes, 1998, we got approached by uh, so many people. All of a sudden, everyone knew about the internet, and everyone wanted to invest. And literally overnight, people were throwing millions of dollars at us and begging us to take their money. And we raised about, over the course of 98, 99, we raised about $40 million. And we expanded into eight countries around the world, including Hong Kong and London and uh, UK and uh, numerous other countries. We had about 300 staff. And we had a market capitalization at the time of about $250 million, so a quarter of a mm. billion dollars. And a year before that, I was just putting expenses on my credit card, just hoping someone would figure out what we were doing. So it's quite the amazing up uh, roller coaster. And then very quickly afterwards, we, 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 we ended up on the downside of that roller coaster. Around nine, It was 2000. It was, I believe, March or April. And I was in Hong Kong, and we were just raising uh, our last amount of money, $5 million more from the South China Morning Post, and we were going to go public on the NASDAQ with something like a billion-dollar valuation. Mm. And I was watching CNBC the night before that we were supposed to go for the... In Hong Kong, they have press conferences and, 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 and paparazzi, even for things like this. So I was, mm -hmm. there was a big press conference, all these photographers lined up, we were going to sign this big deal. We were one of the first international uh, uh, Internet companies going into Hong Kong. And I remember watching CNBC the night before, and, they, and it was all the tech bubble. Amazon's going to $500 per share. Uh, at the time, it was at $200. And uh, everyone was so optimistic. And I turned off the TV. I went to sleep. I woke up in the morning. It was about an hour before the press conference. I turned it on. And the same analysts that said a Amazon was going to $500 were on there saying Amazon's going to zero. The NASDAQ was down something like 200 points. Everyone, every single person on CNBC was saying the tech bubble has just collapsed. I, I was literally panicking. I, I went to the press conference. We actually got the money, and I was really happy about that. But literally from that day forward, I could, I'd called people at Goldman Sachs, all these people who wanted to take us public on the NASDAQ. They wouldn't even return my calls after that day. Mm. So we went mm. from me being in a garage to me running almost a billion-dollar company to everything collapsing, and I had to scale back all of our operations by about 80% overnight uh, in order just to survive because we were expecting a lot of money to be coming in from our IPO, which all of a sudden wasn't going to happen. So it was quite the amazing couple of years for me. <laughs> mm. Talk about a turnaround. Talk about a change of fortunes uh, almost, almost within a 24-hour period of time, I guess. It's, it seemed like that to me, yes. It was, oh. Everything happened so fast. And really, the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing now is after that, I, 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 I took about a year after that just to kind of de-stress. I actually was so stressed out after the whole thing. I had trouble even walking upstairs without mm. getting out of breath, and I was only 30 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And so after I finally de-stressed, I, I decided to, and I sold the company, I said, okay, I that, that's enough of that. 1994 to 2002, eight years, I literally worked from morning to night, was so stressed out I could barely walk upstairs. I said, I'm going to sell this company, and I'm going to figure out what happened, and then I'm going to move on and, and do something else. And so that's mm -hmm. what I did. I sold it in 2002, and I spent a number of years 
just trying to figure out what happened. And that's when I came upon Austrian economics mm. and, uh, and really realized that what had happened was just a giant credit bubble, which is the exact same thing that happened, and that's what Alan Greenspan created later on. After, to save from the tech bubble, he created another bubble in, in U.S. real estate, and now they're creating yet another bubble now. And, and I understand this all now, but at the time I didn't understand it. So mm-hmm. I spent a number of years just uh, reading and uh, trying to understand what happened, and, and now I have a fairly good understanding of what happened, and now I, I write about how central banks and how the government completely... Um, manipulate and contort and actually end, in the end end up destroying economies. Mm-hmm. They certainly do, but in the process there is a reallocation of wealth. I like to say from those that create it, like the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, people that actually do things for other people are not realizing the fruits of their labor. We can only look at the industry that I'm most attached to, that being the gold mining industry, and you find out that the geologist uh, the metallurgists, the scientists that actually make it happen, the guys that go a mile under the ground, uh, they may be doing okay, but they're not getting wealthy. Who are really getting wealthy are the investment bankers that are allocating, controlling the credit to those enterprises. Something wrong with that picture, isn't it, Jeff? Oh, totally. And and I think we're finally seeing the collapse of this entire edifice that has completely engulfed almost the entire world economy now. Uh, it really got out of control. Of course, it started in 1913 with the, the Federal Reserve, and uh, it really got rolling after they uh, devalued the dollar and, and uh, uh, took possession of everyone's gold in 1930s. Um, but, uh, yes, it's basically, if you look at the U.S. economy um, for the last, uh, 50 years. It, the, the amount of uh, wealth and the amount of assets that have gone into just the financial industry, an industry that doesn't create anything, that in many cases is just a, a leech upon the economy. And not to say that banking is evil, uh, but banking in this system is evil. Banking in a non-free market system where the banks are allowed to do whatever they want because of the government uh, and how they uh, th- this entire uh, system we live in at the moment, under the Federal Reserve, under the U.S. government, and under almost every country in the world, every country in the world now has a central bank, which basically does all the same things. We pick on the Federal Reserve because that's the biggest, and that's the one that uh, still uh, 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 creates the most problems and is the biggest uh, sort of leader in, in this area. But. These, these things are non-free market. This is not what the U.S. was built on. There, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was quoted as saying that uh, 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 central banks are more dangerous than standing armies. And mm-hmm. there was never supposed to be centralized banking. Uh, when you think about the U.S. And, what, and America and what they were trying to do a few hundred years ago was by creating freedom, uh, these central banks um, and this entire financial system, which is, is all supported by the central bank, is a complete non-free market centralized system. It's very akin to what happened in the Soviet Union. It's, it's uh, central banks basically control money. They control the price of money or the price of credit through uh, manipulating interest rates. And they can, and now it's gotten completely out of control. We're basically in the final stages of this system of, of collapse, in my opinion, uh, where they, they basically now just do whatever they want. They can just 
print up as much money as they want. They don't have to tell anyone. Uh, and uh, they can do anything they want. Uh, and, and really, all these problems that we're seeing around the world now are all just basically symptoms of the collapse of this system. Yeah, so what we have, and G. Edward Griffin, who's been a, a uh, he's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, was our very first guest on this show back in March of 2009, pointed out that what we have is a monopoly system. You know, people see all different, all these different banks, but in, a, in effect, it's all controlled by one central bank, the Federal Reserve, so it is a monopoly system. And Jeff, you know, you're living in Mexico now. I'm old enough to remember when Mexico had a real severe financial crisis. I was working at the time uh, at NMB, turned into being ING later on. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, this was the time when Ross Perot was running for president, and he was the third alternative between the Republicans and the Democrats. And he talked about this giant sucking sound of U.S. jobs disappearing. Uh, he was he was very much against the banks that were lending. Well, they were lending to Mexico at outrageously high interest rates at the time. They were taking on uh, the bank that I was working for and Citicorp were the primary lenders to Mexico at that time. And they were taking on huge risks in Mexico, but it didn't matter because they knew they would get bailed out. And we've seen this happen time and time again. Now, of course, we saw it with the dot-coms, but we saw it in spades with the housing market where huge amounts of money went were pumped into the system, and the banks uh, had so much money they didn't know what to do with it. They were just, you know, anybody with a heartbeat uh, or a name could get a mortgage, and then we saw what happened. But do the banks pay for that? No. We citizens are asked to pay for it either in inflation or through higher taxes, and people are really getting very, very angry about it now. I think that, I think that you know, things are really unfolding What's going on in Wisconsin is not is not separate from that. Uh, what's going on throughout the country, uh, you know, we we're, we're this whole notion. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I I got interested in gold and started watching it because I had a professor, Dr. Peyton Yoder, back in 1967. Uh, I'm dating myself, but Yoder was absolutely sure that there was a correlation between the breakdown in the work ethic and morality and the debasing of a currency. And I'm more sure than ever that that's true because once you give people, you know, give them something for nothing, they're going to take it. And, 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 and human beings are weak and they, we like to think that we can have something for nothing. We like to think there are no laws governing us. Uh, and yet there are laws of the market. If the, free market are allow, if the free market is allowed to operate, Jeff, I'm sure you'd agree with this, we wouldn't have these problems. I mean, you were just saying that in the banking industry, the free market are not, is not allowed uh, is not allowed to function. Yes, exactly. Um, after I, I uh, finished with Stockhouse, I spent about eight years traveling the world, and well, actually four years uh, total, uh, like literally living out of a backpack. I, I originally actually bought a sailboat and tried to sail around the world, but I sunk that in El Salvador. But when I got to the shore, I actually bought a backpack, and I decided to live as spontaneously as possible for the next three, four years, and, and that's what I did. I would literally go to airports and ask what the next flight was. Many times I'd even end up going somewhere. I didn't even know where I was going. Um, but the point of that is that I traveled the world, and I basically tried to figure out what was going on because when you live – I'm from Canada, but I have – you know, Canada is very tied to the U.S. We, we watch all, your, all the American news, and, and, uh, and Canada is basically like uh, – 
America Junior really is all it is. And yeah. um, we've all grown un- up under the same propaganda, the mm-hmm. same, uh, you know, it all starts with the public education system. Uh, mm-hmm. No one ever asks, why, why don't they teach us what money is? Why don't we learn about what the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve is in school? The reason is because they don't want you to know because that's exactly. the big scam. That's the big operation. We're basically tax slaves living in a tax farm. And as you just said, slowly but surely, people are awakening. And as soon as you awaken, you can see the tax farm, and you become less enslaved. But there's still hundreds of millions of people who haven't. And so that's part of the reason why I started my uh, newsletter, the Dollar Vigilante, is because I wanted to spread the word about, because we, we don't hear this. You don't hear it in schools. You don't hear about freedom. Uh, you know, they still say the, the big uh, U.S. propaganda is we're the land of the free, but uh, yeah. after traveling to nearly 100 countries around the world, I'd have to say the U.S. is one of the least free countries I've ever been to. I was just in Phoenix, and I got handcuffed <laughs> for taking a drink outside of a bar. I know it's illegal, but that's actually legal in most places in the world. That's what freedom is. You can just basically do what you'd like to do as long as you don't hurt anyone. And sure. the U.S. has just become completely a land of, of non-freedom now. And, uh, and But as you say, slowly and surely people are waking up, and even these things that are happening in the Arab world are all um, uh, similar things. People are waking up, and I think the, the real... Uh, reason, the real thing that we have to thank for this is the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the internet, I don't think anything, any of this was possible. Uh, I surely wouldn't have learned one one hundredth of what I know now without the internet because you can't even find these books that I read. And these are, you know, not really uh, books that are way out there. I'm talking Ludwig von Mises. I'm talking sure. about Murray Rothbard. You don't even find sure. those books in, in libraries oh. half the time. No. Uh, no. And, and oh, so the only way that we can actually free ourselves is through the Internet. And uh, and now, of course, most governments around the world are working on ways to uh, kill the Internet. Well, well that's, that's, uh, that certainly has to be a concern. And uh, we have two minutes before we have to go to break. We're going to have you, have you back, of course, uh, for the, on the other side of the break, Jeff. But, but how concerned should we be about the Internet being taken away from us? I'm quite optimistic about the Internet. Being a computer nerd, I know that, uh, and this may be a fault of how it was originally built, but this system, the Internet, was built to withstand nuclear wars. Basically, the only way you can cut the system off completely is to literally cut every cable, disconnect every wireless device. Uh, It can route around nearly anything. The people who live in China today who live under the Chinese firewall, they can all get to YouTube. They use things called proxies. Uh, If you really want to get the information, you can. Um, And that said, I'm not saying you shouldn't really get angry when your government talks about in any way controlling or cutting off the Internet because this is the only chance we have left for real freedom. But I I am optimistic. I think even if... They get super aggressive and really censor and cut off things on the Internet. I think uh, there will be enough people now who understand how it works and who know how to get around it uh, that we will still have ways to communicate and we can still free ourselves through this system. Well, Jeff, you uh, you have had an exciting, very, very interesting life. We've got a minute before we have to go to break. Uh, just going back on your travels there, that, that sailboat that you had, you sunk. You say it sunk off the off the coast of El Salvador, I believe. You said, and 
did you have to swim to shore, or what happened? Did your sailboat go down to the bottom of the ocean, or, or what? Well, it was a catamaran, so they're actually, they actually don't uh, sink. They, they can uh-huh. flip, and uh, you can kind of hang on to them. I ended up on my surfboard, actually. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, for a few hours, and then uh, some nice uh, local sailors from the nearby marina came out and saved me, a couple of Americans, one Canadian, and one guy from New Zealand. And the funny part of that is the next day in the uh, El Salvador newspaper was all of the El Salvador Navy all standing, smiling, saying how they saved me, which I, <laughs> I actually did call them at one point, and they told me they didn't have any boats, and they said, maybe we'll come look for you tomorrow. And uh, oh. but that just goes and to show you just how the government and the media generally works. The, uh, yeah. That was the end story, was I was saved by the El Salvador Navy, but the first time I saw them was when they all came to pose in front of my uh, upside-down <laughs> boat. <laughs> they were going to leave you out there with the sharks overnight until they found time uh, after the morning coffee to pick you up or whatever, I guess. Yeah, I called them at 3 o'clock in the morning. I somehow did get through to the uh, the uh, captain of the Navy, and he was very angry that I had woken him up. And uh, and he, he seemed to have very little interest in helping me at all. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to go to break now. We're going to come back with you, uh, Jeff, on the other side of the commercial break because we have so many more things to talk to you about. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with Jeff Berwick and Roger Wiegand as well. Don't go away. <laughs> 